Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and we're here today talking to Joanne Conroy, and it's a pleasure to have her uh, with us. Joanne is the president and CEO of Dartmouth-Hitchcock Hospital, which is a gigantic employer um, and, um, and, and medical center. It's actually the biggest medical center between, or hospital between Boston and Montreal, uh, which is quite a, uh, quite a distance. And, uh, and she's the CEO. And it's, it's really amazing to think about this job because, I mean, how can you be the CEO of a hospital? Think about how many different things you have to be really good at. And among the most important is, is this one. Um, the people that are your key employees are doctors, and with all due respect to all of my doctor friends, most doctors think they're smarter than everybody else. I could say that uh, quite honestly because professors are no better or no worse. Uh, and so how do, you actually, how do you actually manage an organization where your key employees have this incredibly deep uh, knowledge and expertise uh, and, and they have a lot of loyalty to their profession and to, their, uh, and to what, they're trying to, what they're trying to do, but yet they are employees in a, in a, in a bigger enterprise. Uh, very, very uh, challenging, and it's, and it's interesting to talk to, as you'll hear shortly, Joanne uh, uh, Conroy and some of her, some of her thoughts about, um, uh, about that. You know, we also are thinking about today with the Democratic primaries uh, not far off and uh, 20-some Democratic candidates all gathered uh, around uh, mostly Iowa and New Hampshire most of the time uh, talking about health care and whether it's, um, whether it's Medicare for all or uh, support for fixing or shoring up the uh, Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Uh, they all have something to say about that. And uh, when you're actually the CEO of the hospital, you're in the front lines of this. You're in the front lines of trying to figure out what, what makes sense and what doesn't make sense when it comes to health care. So you have this kind of big public policy challenge to your job. You have this big challenge of having unusual employees that uh, um, they are very, very powerful, called, called doctors, but you're also running an organization with literally thousands of employees uh, that has a social uh, requirement, a social need to help people get better, to help heal people, help prevent, uh, help, help prevent bad things. It's, it's a gigantic job. And so it's a real treat for us to, uh, uh, to have Joanne uh, join us on the SIDCast and, and kind of dig into her life and uh, how she became CEO and some of the things that she thinks about today on a day-to-day basis. Um, it's a pleasure to welcome Joanne Conroy. Welcome to another episode of the SIDCast. And today our guest is Joanne Conroy. Hi, Joanne. Hi, how are you today? Oh, fantastic. Um, so you, uh, you've had uh, a lot of interesting things you've done in your career, but I want to start with kind of the core profession you chose, which is medicine. Uh, why does somebody want to be a doctor? And why did you want to be a doctor? Um, it's, that's a more complicated answer. <laughs> um, I know there are some people that say that they wanted to be a physician since they were a child, but I'm not sure that was the case in my experience. Um, uh, When I went to Dartmouth and I was in the class of 77, which was probably the second class at Dartmouth, they admitted 100 women the uh, May before, and then we were a class of 250. You were the second class that had women. Women in it. That was quite an era, I'm sure, to, yeah. to deal with. Yeah. yeah. So there were a lot of things that I was considering, and I was, um, I was unsure what I wanted to do. I can tell you my father, however, wanted me to be a physician since I was a young child. Really? Yes. My father was 
really interesting personality. He was in executive search. Mm -hmm. And I think he had us all psychoanalyzed when we were younger, <laughs> trying to figure out what we would be um, really skilled at as adults. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, he wanted me to go into medicine. And so, of course, I rejected that. Of course. Of course. That's what, that's what kids do. That's what kids do. And um, But when I went to Dartmouth, you know, I really loved the intersection of religion, philosophy, and architecture and mm -hmm. thought about creating a major in that. And mm. I came home and my father said, no, you are going to be a chemistry major. So I went back to Dartmouth and I actually I completed my undergraduate degree in chemistry with kind of a minor in math. And um, I took the law boards, the med boards, and the GREs before I left Dartmouth because I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. That's pretty interesting. So you, you kind of had all kinds of potential opportunities at yep. that time. Yeah. And um, you did, I presume, reasonably well in all of them. I did. And I so did. what how did you think about it then? So um, my time between Dartmouth and actually deciding to go to medical school, I did a couple things. I dated somebody who was in a farm team for the National Hockey League. Really? So that was really fascinating. So you know that I'm Canadian. Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, so hockey is a good thing. We have another topic here. Okay. Yeah, so, but <laughs> I felt like after a year, my life was a little bit like that movie Slapshot. Oh, my. So um, I decided to get off that merry-go-round. Yep. And I went to run the wet lab at the Marine Biological Labs in Woods Hole, mm -hmm. and um, which was part of the Woods Hole Oceanographic. And I did that for a year, which was just an incredibly fun job. But I knew that I had to figure out. How did you get that job? Mm. Connections. Mm. Uh, a friend of a friend actually was leaving that job and um, said, well, why don't you interview Joanne Conroy? You know, she's available. She went to Dartmouth. And um, it was kind of the Dartmouth graduate connection. Right. And um, I interviewed, and uh, they offered me the job. It was great. And uh, did you apply to school at that time, at the same time, to med school or law school or anything like that? So I... I was applying to medical school, so I had decided after lying on a couch for about six months, <laughs> figuring out what my strengths and weaknesses were while I was working, uh, I decided to go to medical school. Mm -hmm. And But I was about 51% sure that that's, that's what I wanted to That's quite a resounding number there. Well, you know what? Sometimes that's all... That was enough. That was enough. And sometimes in life, that's all you're going to really be able to know about what you're going into. Well, that's actually a really interesting lesson, because a lot of people want to feel like... You know, we even tell people, what's your passion? What's your dream yeah. job? What do you really want to do? And if you don't feel like it's the greatest thing in the world, then yeah. maybe it's not the right thing for you. But you have a different yeah. kind of take on it. You know what? Um, when I look back after going through medical school, I don't think students can really appreciate what they're getting into until they're into it. Mm. I did like the um, just the intellectual challenge of it. And, you know, I knew if I didn't like it, I could always quit. I know that is kind of a sin for, you know, people that aspire to go to medical school. They couldn't imagine why people would yeah. stop going. But um, I applied. I was a uh, resident of Massachusetts, so I applied to some schools in Massachusetts. But my parents lived in South Carolina, so mm -hmm. I also applied to the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. And like most good New Englanders, Charleston and Charlotte, I thought they were the same city. I didn't really know where it uh -oh. was. We have, we're gonna, I know we're going to have a lot of <laughs> listeners down there. But now you know for sure, right? Yes. And they're both wonderful. And they're both way. wonderful. And they're wonderful. But you know what? You actually get very New England-centric 
yes. uh, when you grow up New here. New Englanders have a tendency of being particularly... Mm, yeah. We don't really say. understand the geography between Miami and Washington, D.C. So, um, but I went down there and uh, interviewed, and they mm -hmm. offered me a position in the class. And my tuition was $800 a semester. Oh, my God. So, what, what year are we talking about now? So I started medical school in 1979. And it was, was $800? A semester. And was that because you had special scholarships? No, I was an in-state student. Wow, isn't that amazing? Yeah, and the, the cost of medical school now is just, it's, uh, you know, you have to take off a out of mortgage from a house. What, what's the sticker price at Dartmouth now for medical school? Oh, most medical schools are about $70,000 a year. 70000 a year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We have created some interesting barriers for people from poor socioeconomic backgrounds. We have. To actually go and do this. We have. And we actually, um, when I was in Washington, we actually followed the background of um, applicants and successful matriculants who entered medical school. Mm -hmm. And the average household income has continued to climb over the last few years just mm. because people that come from tough economic backgrounds can't afford it. The average debt, this is what people owe, um, is over $180,000 just for medical school for alone. For medical school alone. Yeah. And this is a, that's a number across the country. Yeah. yeah. 180000 So what do you think about um, NYU and, and Columbia as well, I think, mm. is... There are a lot of them that actually are trying to offer full scholarships. Mm. So Cleveland Clinic has a medical school that is a part of Case Western, and it's all funded by scholarships. So huh. they, nobody pays tuition. Has it been that way for a while, Cleveland Clinic? Yeah, that's how, when they formed it. Um, oh, right and they from didn't, the beginning. Yeah, but they, it's not very old. I would say mm. the Cleveland Clinic Medical School is, you know, less than 15 years old. So there's so many things that you're talking about that I want to kind of dig into, but this one in Cleveland Clinic. So Cleveland Clinic is renowned as one of the greatest uh, healthcare uh, facilities, hospitals in, in the world, not just in the U.S., yeah. and they never had a medical school. They were affiliated with Case Western. Yes, and it's still affiliated with Case, but separate. But separate. And so they decided to create a medical, you said 15 years ago, more or less? Yeah, about 15 years ago, and they have a small class. I think their class might be 32 and um, huh. they um, get incredible candidates. They must. I'm, I'm yeah. just wondering why they wanted to do such a thing. I think they wanted people to have the freedom to go into a specialty area mm. um, without um, being concerned about repaying their debt. Now, when we look nationally, we find out that people that want to go into primary care or want to go into pediatrics go into it regardless of the debt. Mm. But there is a group of medical students that have to make some decisions based right. on the amount of debt. Right. And when you think about the medical school debt of 180, some of them have undergraduate debt That's as right. well. We're not even talking so, about that. Correct. Yeah. And so back to the Cleveland Clinic. So, uh, and they had the resources to be able to offer yes. this. Yes, yes. Um, but many of them are um, trying to increase endowments now right. to do this. So I think not only NYU, but... Mm, I'm thinking Mayo is also mm. heading in that direction mm -hmm. to actually create barrier-free um, uh, medical school opportunities. So I want to go. I want to get back to the kind of the financial side of this, which mm -hmm. is intriguing. But another question I have about the Cleveland Clinic, maybe you can't really answer it because you, you weren't there. But why would they even want to create a medical school? You know what I'm saying? They're already at the top of the game. Mm -hmm. uh, medical schools are very expensive. Mm -hmm. um, 
um, they probably lose money even with these, even with this type of tuition and, and loans that are that are required, and they already have this this top of the line, you know, yeah. reputation. So, there have been about thirty medical schools that have been created over the last fifteen years, hmm. new medical schools. Uh, Kaiser is starting one. In Kaiser, Southern, the, yep. the big HMO yep. in uh, Southern California. California. Yeah, they're starting their own medical yes. school. Yes. So most of these institutions start their own medical school because mm. they actually believe that the training experience that they offer is unique. Number one, and number two. They are trying to train people that live and work and deliver care within that mindset that they have created in their institution. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of filling their pipeline at the same time. So those students are likely or they're hoping will stay in Mayo or will stay at I'm sure the most talented students are be given, opportunities. given opportunities to do the rest of their training mm -hmm. within their health system. Mm -hmm. It's the same way that Kaiser is approaching their medical school. You know, they have... They want to train people within a managed care environment so providers really know how to deliver care mm -hmm. within an environment. Mm -hmm. I think um, undergraduate medical education has um, had a lot of critics over the last few years that we haven't evolved how we train um, our physicians mm -hmm. the way that other industries have evolved how they train their professionals. You know, we still use an apprenticeship model. We still use the same model that we had probably over 100 years ago. It's more sophisticated. We have a lot more information that we translate to students, and we translate it in maybe different ways, yeah. but it's still an apprenticeship model. Right. You, but, I, but, you know, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's, no. uh, that's actually exceptional. Yeah. My own uh, research on leadership and training and development of talent, I talk about the apprenticeship model yeah. as the type of thing that the top companies and the best CEOs and best managers, that's what they're going to do yeah. because that, there's no replacement for that one-on-one -on -one training. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so you've had it for a long time, and I hope, hope that's not something that's going to be um, going to go by the wayside. Well, we are asking ourselves, um, can we do it better? Better is good, but just because you're doing something that's been the same for a long time doesn't automatically mean it's a bad idea. Well, people say, can we do it faster? Faster. Because it's, it's As a, a number of years to go. Yeah, it's a long process. Uh -huh. So it's four years of medical school, uh -huh. and it can be between three and seven years of really? post-medical school training, depending on the right. specialty area you want to go right. into. Mm -hmm. So um, people are saying, can we actually do this faster? And then I, we're debating um, whether or not you need to have two tracks although it's hotly debated, between a clinician and a physician researcher mm -hmm. that may spend their time differently. We do want both. We want incredible clinicians that are great diagnosticians, but we also don't want to lose the opportunity for people to do research because that advances healthcare. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the research is just richer if you have... PhDs and practicing clinicians that are working together to develop yeah. the hypotheses and prove or disprove them. Right, right. So this idea of kind of trying to cut back on the amount of time it takes. Mm -hmm. So it's true in medicine uh, when you start adding, you know, resident stage and internship and training and then specializations. It's really a lot of years. It's yeah. it's true. Um, and but you could look at other countries okay. that have. Are they long doing it faster? Well, they have a long process, but they it's a little bit different in terms of how you're paid and how you work uh -huh. within that long process. So I would say Great Britain 
has a different process where people move through the undergraduate and the graduate and the kind of a specialist training mm-hmm. um, over um, a long period of time, but they're paid differently. You know, we have medical students that pay a lot of money to go to medical school and they accumulate a lot of information and then they go into the residencies where they work 80 hours a week mm-hmm. and often uh, put a lot of things of their life on hold. And then between the last day of the residency and the first day of their next job, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden they go from being a resident to being a practicing physician and their salary goes up by, a, you know, five times more. Dramatically, yes. Dramatically. And, um, you know, I, I think we talk about this, can we smooth out the transition yeah. to practice and can we have a more um, humane kind of lifestyle for yeah. residents in training. And um, just figuring out how to do it nationally is um, a focus of both the AAMC and the ACGME. They're trying to, and these are organizations that are focused on medical schools and residency education. Just how do you actually, um, how do you smooth it out and have a more humane process? So Joanne, back to the, the timetable and cutting, cutting out time mm-hmm. and, and how long it takes to to, to get a medical degree and to be mm-hmm. a practicing uh, physician. In some countries, I think you can, you can start medical school as an 18-year-old or yes. medical training of some type. And here, it's, it's very unusual. Well, we did try that years ago. We had a number of six-year college to medical school programs mm-hmm. where um, you did oh. two or three years of undergraduate and then you know three to four years of your medical school training. A lot of... Um, so people went through that successfully. But I think some people felt um, they lost something in right. not having that full undergraduate experience. But you're absolutely right. In a lot of countries, you go right into your medical school training. I mean, you know, this is true um, across the board. Hardly any part of the world has traditional liberal arts programs, like kind of what you did at, yeah. at Dartmouth and what yeah. so many other you know, young people do. And, and that's another debate about whether liberal arts are good or bad. I think there's a lot of people, myself included, that really see the benefit and the value. But it's expensive because it you're is adding expensive. on additional years of school. And I think that's one of the drivers is how can we actually maybe take a year out? If we took a year out for students in this training timeline, um, we would save, save them seventy to $80,000 mm. of undergraduate debt. Wow. Wow. So is it the case then that um, um, we're not really getting as many kids, young people from um, poor socioeconomic backgrounds in in, uh, medical school now? Well, I think there are barriers. Um, People are trying to um, really put their arms around the cost of their college education and then on top of that facing additional debt on their medical school education. Frankly, though... um, Physicians are paid at a rate that most of them actually can defray the costs within a reasonable period of time. In other words, they, 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 they make a decent amount of money. Every single bank wants to give <laughs> young physicians in training money because they know they're going to pay it off. Right. I think it's it becomes really difficult when you have two providers in a family, maybe a husband mm-hmm. and a wife, mm-hmm. um, and then you combine their debt that's when it gets to be sure. significant. Yeah. So, um, you know, 
I think I've heard stories from a number of the young professionals that kind of are struggling. I, I think it, the first five years in practice becomes very difficult. And, um, you know, trying to repay their debt and also start their lives because they're playing catch up too. You know, they're starting their families. They're That's true. And their friends uh, who are not going down a medical path, they already are making whatever they're making. It depends right. on their career. Not everybody necessarily makes a lot of money, but they're more established right. in their career. Right. And they started their families and they may have a foothold in equity in a house. And mm. so, yeah, um, medical students that go through long residencies put a lot on hold. What's the reputation of physicians these days? Has it changed over time? Because you think about different professions, uh, probably right at the bottom are Congress, uh, just not necessarily now, but always. Yeah. Um, near the top would be the military or police officers. Professors actually yeah. do pretty well. Nurses do great. Nurses do great. Yeah. Physicians, I don't think, are at that level, but they're probably pretty high up, I'm going to guess, but I'm not sure. You know, they are. I think the conversation around physicians has shifted. Um, there used to be a lot of stories <clears throat> about um, physicians that were just focused on how much money they make. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a shift across the country. M- many physicians are employed now. Over 50% of the physicians in the United States are employed mm-hmm. by a hospital or a health system or a large group practice. As opposed to having their own practice. Correct. Or a partner in a small practice. Correct. So um, what drives them is, might be a little bit different. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're part of a larger group, so they're driving to efficiencies rather mm-hmm. than perhaps what they're taking home in their own paycheck every week. Yeah. Number one. Um, number two, I think the national focus has focused on burnout. We're hearing a lot more about the stress on providers, physicians, and advanced nurse practitioners um, from the additional regulatory burden that's mm-hmm. been imposed on them, as well as the burdens working with an electronic health record. Right. And, um, the, you know, some of our young physicians, it doesn't phase them a bit. Because they grew up with you know, grew digital up with technology. It. They look at a patient, make mm-hmm. keep eye contact, and type like a demon. Yeah. But many of our um, older physicians don't have that skill. I've seen it myself going to see a doctor, and there's an assistant that's typing away as the doctor does the examination. Describe. We, describe, describe. we use a lot of scribes, scribes now. Yeah. Just so we don't actually lose that interface for the it patient. It seems like kind of expensive. Yeah. Mm, if if that physician could see two more people a day, mm-hmm. covers his cost. But how about comparing it to if there were no electronic records and they were just writing it down, the notes that they always have done in the past? Uh, that might be easier, but what we would lose in that would be the ability to really assess a broad patient population on their um, kind of wellness indicators. Like yeah, right now, yeah. we can tell how many people in your practice haven't had their annual mammogram as a woman, mm-hmm. haven't had their eye exam as a diabetic, haven't had their colonoscopy as somebody over the age of 50. So you can actually remind your patients about mm-hmm. the wellness things they haven't had, number one. Number two, right in front of us in the medical record, we can actually see, if you're a diabetic, we can actually track your blood sugars, we can mm-hmm. track your hemoglobin A1C, we can... Uh, track all mm. the metrics that kind of tell us if your disease right. is under control. That becomes very difficult to do in a paper no, record. No doubt, no doubt about that. Uh, and so is that something that most physician practices or, or docs are doing now? They have algorithms built into these electronic records, I presume. They do. They're not writing the software themselves. And they're held accountable 
for it as well. So we have a lot of pay for performance programs. With most of our insurance companies, um, there is a pay for performance uh, variable part of payment um, that's reflected on hitting these quality indicators. So we actually have to give that information to an insurance company mm -hmm. so the provider can actually receive the payment for ensuring that the quality of care by these mm -hmm. metrics has been delivered it's to the patients. the insurance company is driving that? Yes. Demanding that? Yes. And they're the ones who pay? Yes. Very interesting. It was started really by um, CMS, the um, you know provider of Medicare and Medicaid services. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, felt that they were paying people to do units of service, but mm -hmm. not actually getting the quality that they felt mm -hmm. people should be receiving mm -hmm. from their health care providers. <clears throat> this started, I would say, in, we started talking about it in 2004. So it's 14, 15 years that we've been talking about mm -hmm. it. And the quality metrics take a long time to develop and implement, and, you know, they're not they may not be the best metrics, but the best ones we have right now right. to really try to make sure that people are managing their chronic diseases mm -hmm. in the best way possible. So I'm thinking about, uh, so I'm into, I, I like sports. I've been reading and listening a lot about sports analytics and, um, you know, baseball and actually every sport. It's really kind of incredible. And there are companies that have been developed. I was, uh, I was listening the other day to um, a woman who um, um, created a company after college. She was, I think, in, in field hockey. But her company's about ma uh, monitoring, creating a platform for sleep. Oh, yeah. um, and there's all these metrics. And her research and, and, and scientist research is able to, it's, it's more correlation on the causal, which is you know still further to go. But it's showing really powerful relationships between not just you know how much sleep or the quality of sleep that you're going to feel better, perform better, in quotes, but that your exit velocity in baseball of hitting the ball, which is like a very important metric, uh, actually goes up. And I so, believe it. You believe in the, in the context of... Well, uh, actually, the, I think the evidence is there. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting book called Why We Sleep that actually brings together a lot of the evidence mm -hmm. and kind of marries it with what we think and um, how we behave around yeah. our sleep patterns. Mm -hmm. And I actually started... A little experiment with myself. I tried to get eight hours of sleep a night, which is actually quite difficult. You know, you think as you get older, you don't need as much sleep, but you actually do need yeah, as much yeah. sleep. Um, eliminating things from my diet to see if it would help me sleep mm -hmm. a little bit better. Um, and then I actually measured my heart rate, yeah. my blood pressure, you did a study on and uh, my weight, mm -hmm. just to see if I would actually become healthier mm -hmm. as I tried to really focus more on my sleep. What's great is when you sleep, you organize the little files in your brain. So um, I always think, you know, if I'm solving a really difficult problem, there's nothing better mm -hmm. to do than sleep on it. Right. And really, sometimes you wake up the next day and the answer is, seems really easy. Is it, is it also true, Joanne, that sleep actually allows your other organs, not just your brain, to regenerate in some, in some way, that there's a, there's a chemical or biochemical process that... Um, um, that makes them healthier, it makes our organs healthier uh, in part via sleep. Because mm -hmm. I know the brain um, uh, example about the file cabinet 
I mean, it's been your CSF does shift in your brain. What is it, that? Your uh, cerebral spinal fluid. Thank you. It does. It does. The flow of it actually does shift yeah. while you're asleep. So, yeah. you know, people postulate that yeah, it actually cleans out things that are in your brain yeah. that while you're sleeping. So there is some evidence to say a lot of things happen while we're asleep. But think about it. Um, you're lying flat. Mm-hmm. And physiologically, lying flat is very different than standing up and walking around. Mm. So what happens at night is um, the fluid actually comes in from your cells, your interstitial space, and moves into your vascular space, which then um, goes through your heart and your kidneys. And you actually then, that's why people have to like get up in the morning and go to the restroom mm-hmm. because they've actually created and collected more urine during the night because of that movement of fluid into the intervascular space. Mm. And, you know, that's just part of um, how our bodies, actually, that's like the, like the normal physiologic rhythm of our bodies. And, you know, think what would happen if you were sleeping standing up. None of that would happen. No, it would not. It wouldn't be very comfortable, would it? Although all of us have fallen asleep in a chair and, yeah. and get that quink in our neck or something yeah. like that, which is not yeah. so good. Yeah. Uh, well, there's more I want to uh, I want to talk to you about, Joanne, on on analytics and and, and data, uh, along with a bunch of other things. So let's take a short break and we'll be right back. I have a very short commercial for everyone listening today, and that commercial is get get out and vote. Uh, we're talking healthcare with uh, with Joanne Conroy today and. Uh, the issues around uh, around healthcare and public policy and 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 whether the Affordable Care Act is the right idea or not or how to make it better, all those things are critical. And the only way that people get to get to really weigh in on these things is when we vote. And so uh, let's pay attention, especially to to the um, all these Democratic candidates that uh, that are out there asking for uh, for our support. And uh, and and vote for the person we think is the is the best one in every dimension. And healthcare has got to be near the top of them. We're back with Joanne Conroy. Hi, Joanne. Good You've been morning. giving us quite an education <laughs> on healthcare, and I'm going to continue the tutorial by asking you about uh, data privacy. Um, I guess you don't have to read about you know Russians. Um, putting all kinds of stuff on Facebook uh, to be nervous about that. Everyone understands that uh, almost uh, every week something happens about data that's been hacked. But we're talking about here, when we're talking about electronic health records, it's our health data. It's personal. It's private. And obviously, we don't want anyone to see that. Uh, but, these, but these methods, these systems have really started, they're starting to dominate around the country. So uh, how can people, like, what do you say to people when they, when they, when they say, I'm, I'm nervous about this? Yeah. Well, I first start with a little history. So HIPAA, which is the Health Insurance uh, Privacy and Portability Act. Um, Actually, I think uh, Ted Kennedy was very involved in actually Mm. establishing that initial legislation, which was really when we started um, seeing the proliferation of electronic health records. And people said, well, how do we actually limit the access to this? And Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think initially people said, you know, I don't want my physical exam or my diseases somewhere out on the web, even though we know through Facebook and Snapchat mm-hmm. and Instagram, there some people have very little filter about yes. sharing their personal issues. Yes. However, 
in terms of their medical records, people were very protective for many number mm -hmm. of reasons. Um, you know, we have this firewall between employer and employee in terms of the health records. Mm -hmm. We want to respect that. People don't want to feel discriminated against if they thought they had a um, chronic disease. Um, and um, so anyway, we kind of developed this mechanism to protect um, people's health records. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a lot of rules. There are um, certainly some very public uh, fines and punishments if people don't have appropriate uh, protection on their records. But more importantly, the electronic health record is almost a portal into the rest of our data. So think about it. We have so many pieces of now our equipment um, that are actually fed into the electronic health record. Mm -hmm. We have so many electronic pieces of how we deliver care mm -hmm. that it's more than just the individual's data, it actually is access into our systems. So Dartmouth-Hitchcock thinks a lot about our firewall. You know, a lot of our mm -hmm. employees, there are things that they can't do across the firewall because we actually need to protect the data of patients and we need to actually protect the data of the institution, mm -hmm. which is financial data, billing data. I'm, I'm, we have read about organizations that get ransom um, yep. when people actually hold their data systems hostage. And that's disastrous for an organization yep. that works 24-7. So there's been a, a big focus on that in healthcare. I'd have to say, though, it's still not portable. You know, we have electronic health records who don't talk to each other across the country. Um, it's because they're on proprietary platforms. Um, and, but that makes it more difficult for people to actually travel with their health records and know that it can be accessed by anyone that's mm -hmm. providing care to them anywhere. Right, right. Um, and that's kind of, it's kind of a ridiculous thing you just said, right? It is. Yeah. Um, uh, so healthcare records are so important. You know, you explained, you know, about HIPAA and some of the things around it, but is there a guarantee that Dartmouth-Hitchcock or any other hospital would not get hacked? Can anyone give such a guarantee? No, I mean, we get attacked constantly, huh. constantly. Who's attacking? Can you um, identify? Well, we know um, that um, from Europe, there are some Eastern European countries that are constantly trying to hmm. hack into systems. I mean, it's, hmm. it's every millisecond, you know, you get some phishing, um, um, really, attempt. And um, they... they Certain areas of the country are actually more um, vulnerable than others, but mm -hmm. it's a constant barrage. Yeah. And they actually, they, they identify, you know, 99% of it, but things do get through once in a while. Mm -hmm. And um, we have to educate all of our employees to be really suspicious about emails and that come from outside and um, with attachments, et cetera, because once they're in the firewall, Mm -hmm. um, they're within our system, and um, they're, they could create a lot of mayhem. Yeah, yeah. It, it, this has been a, it's a bit of a mystery to me. It's not just about healthcare, but uh, you have all these, these hackers, Eastern European countries or, or what have you, uh, and is it the case that they can possibly be as sophisticated, as data savvy, as technologically advanced as, as um, top American companies, let alone the American government? Yes. Uh, 
how could they beat us when there's 10 of them or 100 of them or even 1,000 of them? And we have the Department of Defense. We have the NSA. We have Facebook. We have Google. We, we, we have – I find it hard to believe that we're losing that battle. Yeah. Um, I think we're just fighting the battle. And are they better or are they not as good? Um, you know, I, I think they're, people are talented, and that's all they're focused on is yes. trying to hack into systems. It's a form of terrorism, like guerrilla warfare. Yeah. You know, we don't encourage people to do that here. <laughs> in fact, we put them in jail. Yes. But um, in other countries, that's actually somebody's job. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's uh, let's shift to uh, your job <laughs> as the uh, as the CEO of Dartmouth Hitchcock um, uh, Hospital. And uh, so, how long have you been at the helm as the CEO? Eighteen months. Eighteen months. And what was it like when you showed up on day one? <laughs> so this is my um, not my first job as a, a hospital leader, and not my first health system. But uh, I do remember pulling up the first day, and. Uh, you know, I had my diplomas hmm. and, you know, things for my office. And I, I remember walking up to the front, and there was a large wheelchair, so I just wheeled it out to my car that was in the visitor lot because I didn't know where to park yet, and, like, put my boxes uh. in the car and, and wheeled them in the front door mm-hmm. and um, got in the elevator. And I think I shocked a lot of people because— They recognize you? Some people may have. Um, well, I, I think the guard at the front door um, was a little bit taken aback. He didn't. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of a do-it-yourself CEO. Yeah, I, I, I guess and, I'm picking up on that. <laughs> and uh, but that's okay. I just wheeled it down yeah, the hall right, and, and right. brought it to my office and mm-hmm. introduced myself to the staff. I'd met a number of people sure. before my first day, and actually before I started, I was pretty purposeful in meeting with all the board members mm-hmm. and making sure that I understood exactly what they expected of me. And that you did before you said yes before to I, this job? I did it before I started. I'd said mm-hmm. yes, but I did it before my first day. Okay. And you had met some of those board members, presumably. They were all part of the interview process. interview search, process. Yeah, the search committee. Yeah. So. And what type of due diligence do you do at that level from your, from your side uh, in trying to figure out what this organization is like? So the organization provides a lot of data, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of other data sources you can access yeah. from outside the organization. Mm-hmm. So I'm took advantage of all those. I went back and looked at about six years of 990s. Um, that is really the financial performance of the organization. Got copies of rating agency reports. Sure. Um, talked to some people that I knew in the Upper Valley who were worked here um, his, historically and maybe had retired. Yeah. And uh, asked them about the culture, asked them about things that people were uncomfortable of talking about. Mm-hmm. I read all news reports that I could get mm-hmm. um, about yeah. the organization right. just to hear kind of what they'd been um, dealing with over the right. last few years. So I had a pretty good picture yeah. when I walked in the door. I think it's uh, I think it's the reason I asked you that is I knew you, you would have done a lot. And when you, when you take on a big job, you don't want to discover the skeletons in the closet. I mean, it's always possible. You just want to reduce the odds greatly. Right. But it also is a very valuable lesson for anyone at any stage of career. They're not going to do everything you just did, yeah. but try to figure out what's going on in that company, the culture, the types of people. Yeah. Uh, do that due diligence. Um, yeah. Even you know, even for um, an entry-level job, even talking to one or two people make a difference. So uh, you took the job, you showed up, you did the wheelchair thing, and you set up uh, office. Um, um, could you tell us a little bit what you did in the first couple of days, just kind of at a really kind of yeah. detailed level, because I'm very interested about yeah. that. Well, I spent a lot of time walking around 
and meeting people. Yeah. Of course, there are certain meet and greets that they set up, but sure. I immediately started um, going down to the cafeteria and having lunch. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'm a grab a cup of soup. That's mm-hmm. all I have for lunch. And I'd go out into the dining room and try to identify one or two employees that mm-hmm. were sitting alone, and I'd go up and ask them if I could join them. And I had a couple questions. I asked them. I introduced myself. They didn't recognize you in most cases? Probably not. Probably not. I just started. And were they startled that the new CEO wants to sit with them for lunch? They were. Okay. (laughs) They were. And I said, you know, why do you work here? How long have you worked here? And um, talked about their job, talked about what they liked and Mm -hmm. what they thought should be fixed. And I asked them Mm -hmm. what advice they had for me. Mm -hmm. Did you get some interesting? Yes. Yeah. There were great conversations. Yeah. And uh, I, the first things I heard uh, were about health insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a high deductible health plan. And some of our um, employees that um, are make lower hourly wages have a hard time really even affording basic preventive care and affording the medications. That is rather ironic. Yes. Given the organization's yeah. a And hospital. We, we made some changes this year, mm-hmm. significant changes mm-hmm. that... Um, I think will have a real impact. Yeah. Um, they talked about the layoffs that mm-hmm. had occurred mm-hmm. over um, a four-year period. Many of the employees were 20 or 30 years mm-hmm. in duration employees. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, And they talked about what they liked about the institution, right. and there are a lot of things that they liked. They liked the people they work with. Mm-hmm. They felt that um, it was really a, a culture that felt like a family culture. Mm-hmm. And um, that they were, you know, hope to finish their career there. Right. So, and and they so they were pretty forthcoming with you. They were. Um, so they had to trust you to some extent. Yeah. 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 Um, they were. And word travels fast. Word travels fast. Now I understand that they actually stay, say that in orientation, that I do that. And For so, new employees. Yeah, people are forewarned. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, uh-huh. I actually did sit down with a new employee about a month ago. And she said, I was told that you do this. <laughs> <laughs> and do you, do you still do this, like most lunches when you don't have meetings and other things? Or yeah, traveling? yeah, yeah, I do, I do. Mm-hmm. It's, always, it's always actually um, inspiring. Um, you know, we've, the organization has really had a dramatic um, improvement both in our performance, but really I think people feeling good about the organization mm-hmm. over the last 18 months. So... Um, you, I probably hear a little less grumbling, although I get a lot of advice. Yes. And uh, but people are feeling really good. They're mm-hmm. feeling like we're going somewhere, mm-hmm. and we're going in a direction that is smart for the community. And um, it, they're proud to be a part of that. Have you made uh, many changes in the first? Uh, well, it's eighteen months, but in the first six months, and all the way to, to where you are now. I did make some changes. Uh, we focus a lot on employee engagement and focus a lot on health insurance. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, somebody said I'm either brilliant or crazy. (laughs) Um, What we have done for our lower wage employees, anybody that makes less than $50,000 a year, we almost fully fund their health savings account for not only the employee, but their family. Mm -hmm. So their out of pocket is about $200 a year instead of um, between fourteen and um, fourteen hundred and twenty eight hundred, so that's a big difference for those employees. Mm-hmm. 
And I hope to see that their um, health, uh, as measured by you know all the measures that we talked mm-hmm. about earlier, um, will improve, especially around diabetes and high blood pressure. And you're talking about the employees now. The employees, yeah. Yeah. Why is it that so many healthcare employees? And I don't know if how, this is obviously a generalization, but. Maybe maybe it's accurate. Many seem maybe the stress is so high, but it seems like you know they they're not in the best of health. Yeah. So I would say that um, their health probably reflects the average health of the population. Yeah. Number one, but number two, I think employees that work at night have very different stresses. Hmm. You know, we were talking about sleep before. Yes. So these are people that are chronically sleep deprived. And so they do have different health issues. Mm-hmm. And frankly, nothing keeps you awake better than, you know, comfort food, which is often fat-laden, mm. at um, midnight or one in the morning. Mm-hmm. And um, it's easy, and it, mm. it, you get that sugar rush. Yeah. But it's not always great for your health. It's very hard to get people to change those habits. Um, and, I'm, and I'm interested in this is not just about your employees, but just in terms of healthcare policy, because you have worn that hat as well. How do you get people to stop doing these bad habits? Because I think about it even in, in a more traditional business sense. And yeah. people know you should pay attention to your competitors. They know you have to think about and do something digitally in whatever industry you're in. Yeah. Uh, it's not that that's it's not rocket science. They know it, but it doesn't happen. Well, we know that there are some things that we can incent people to not do. Then there's some things that it just it doesn't work. Yeah. For example, we know that. Um, by increasing people's premium, um, we can actually effectively incent people to lose weight. It's, it's complicated. Um, we do know that by helping support Weight Watchers when you actually pay for the cost of it if they attend more than a certain number of the mm-hmm. sessions, mm-hmm. actually does incent them to attend. Uh, we do know that we can incentivize people to stop smoking. I'll give you an example. Back to Cleveland Clinic. Mm-hmm. They refuse to employ anybody that smokes. Hmm. And they test for nicotine. They and they test for nicotine, wow. And they've decreased the smoking incidence mm-hmm. in the county in which they sit by 50%. Wow. So there are ways. That's a giant number. That is a giant number. So smoking actually is um, pretty susceptible to that type of incentive character stick. Now, I've got to, I've got to just ask you, I guess that's legal because they would have been challenged by those who thought it would not be legal, but and, and who's, who would be against the idea? Well, I'm sure some people are, but you can see the logic of you know, not employing people that are smoking, but you, you can think of a lot of other things that are a little bit more controversial. Not, not employing someone who is um, um, who's obese. Um, well, that's seen by many people as discrimination. Isn't discrimination, it? yeah. So it, it is, it's a fine line to walk, but they've walked it very effectively. Yeah. And Are you going to do that here with that cigarette? Uh... So we do actually test for nicotine mm-hmm. um, among the many things we test for when yeah. you um, actually apply for a job. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do is we tell people they can't smoke on campus. All right. And that does create a barrier for anybody that uses tobacco products because um, that means not in their car, not outside the facility, not anywhere Mm -hmm. on campus. Uh, And that does drive people to actually use our smoking cessation programs and actually end up 
right. quitting smoking. Yeah. So, but you know the other things that we want to incent people to do. You can't make them lose weight, but you can incent people to be fit. That means you can incent people to walk and have walking teams, etc. Mm-hmm. It becomes how you kind of change how they live their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have removed sugary drinks from the cafeteria, mm-hmm. and we don't fry any food hmm. at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Um, you could question, we do have still have artificial sweeteners in some drinks, yeah. and I think that's There's controversial. There's no shortage of things you can go down the list. Yeah, right now, uh, but no sugary drinks. And frankly, my husband loves to drink like full-on Coca-Cola, yeah. and he was shocked that he couldn't get a sugary drink <laughs> in the cafeteria when he was there one day. But you know that's a choice that we've made mm-hmm. years ago. Right. Um, I think you remove it from the environment, it becomes more difficult for people. Mm-hmm. They have to make healthier choices. You just narrow it down. Right. So, so we've been talking a lot about the employees and, and, and the health of the employees and how, some of the changes you made there. What about to the actual institution itself? and the, the, the business of helping uh, preventing an, uh, um, illness and, and helping people recover from illness. Yeah. So we look at ourselves now as an anchor institution. What we do is not limited to the health care services we offer within our walls. When we think about it, um, we have a role to play in you know, helping the state really address the opioid crisis, and we're one of the leaders, not only research, but actually developing clinical mm-hmm. programs that help people stay sober. Uh, we're also having conversations about affordable housing in the Upper Valley, transportation. Um, we're the largest employer in the state of New Hampshire, and what we do for our employees, but mm-hmm. also what we do that impacts the community affects a lot of people. In fact, outside of the you know $2.1 billion, that's our revenue, um, we probably generate twice that in other businesses that actually are affected by the business that we spin off from Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. So um, we have to think of ourselves as doing more than just providing healthcare services. Right. Where um, between Dartmouth-Hitchcock and Dartmouth College, we probably employ over 50% of the people in the Upper Valley. It's really un- yeah. unbelievable. It's, yeah, the two giant, two giant institutions. It's a, it's a university town, and that's yeah. not yeah. that unusual, but except for these kind of little enclaves, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but we're doing other things. Like yeah. we are um, made a commitment to actually expand our inpatient towers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're turning away, and these are people that are needing transfer to the facility. So they're already sitting in another emergency room, but between 200 and 300 people a month that are very appropriate for being for admission to Dartmouth-Hitchcock can't get in because we don't have a bed. They're going to uh, other facilities, some in Massachusetts, some in Vermont, uh, but really they're New Hampshire citizens and we should be able to serve them. So we're going to expand our inpatient beds. And with that, probably 300 more jobs at least, and then certainly um, some other services that we're going to focus on and the research and academic infrastructure that goes along with that. So how does it work with the hospital? It's a, it's a nonprofit? Yes. And so the accounting statements at the end uh, will give a, a statement of, I guess, a surplus or a deficit, is that? That's correct. And, um, and so you're managing it in the same ways as if you would be a for-profit when you get right down to it, except you don't call it profit or loss, you call it 
surplus or deficit. It's called the operating margin. Yeah, the same thing. We use the same terms. The same, the same terms. But I would say that we are accountable to our community mm-hmm. instead of uh, instead of the shareholders. Shareholders, yeah. and we can make decisions that might decrease our margin, but in the long run, actually benefit the community or put us in a stronger financial position. Mm-hmm. We're uh, we don't have to live um, quarter to quarter when you have to do a quarterly earnings report now. We attend to how we're performing on a month-by-month basis. Mm -hmm. But um, sometimes we've got to have some long-range targets that our margin might go down, but then we'll go back up. Mm -hmm. You know, we have financial metrics that we focus on, which are kind of days cash on hand. It's kind of like our savings account, um, which is the number of days that we could, of operating cash that we could run if we didn't have any revenue. so how many days is that? So right now we're uh, almost 170 days. Mm-hmm. You know, our goal is to be above 180. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were quite low um, in 2016. Is that a common metric for hospitals? Yes. It yeah. Is. It's it's a metric of basically financial resilience. That yeah. means we can weather something uh, that mm-hmm. you know goes on that happens out of the blue unexpectedly. Right. We can weather that. It's an interesting metric because. You think about it in the startup world, the venture capital world, they talk about the burn rate and uh, how many months can you survive? Because, in fact, in those companies, there's very often no revenue at all. Yeah. You have a little different scenario, yeah. but uh, this is quite a conservative, actually, mindset, I think, that you want to have half a year of cash on hand or yeah. easy, easy to convert to cash yeah. um, in, uh, as if you wouldn't have revenue, but yeah. the revenue doesn't just stop. Well, there are a couple reasons why. I mean, there are institutions, when I was in South Carolina and I was at the medical university for a long time, mm-hmm. we probably didn't have more than 15 days of cash for a long, long time. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. our debt was backed by the state. Mm-hmm. So that's a different um, scenario than when we actually have to issue our own debt. And we're, we are accountable to the people that hold our debt. So um, they want to know that um, the debt's going to be repaid and that the organization is financially strong. Do you have a, a background in finance or accounting? I don't. You learned along the way, quite obviously. Yeah. Did you end up getting an MBA or a part-time MBA? I did not. You learned on the job. I did. Yeah. And can you imagine doing your, your job without that type of skill set? With a great CFO, for example? Uh, and brings all of that? I think you have to know what questions to ask. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And you have to know um, when to probe. It's all right to say, um, explain to me X, because it feels like it's something that we're not paying enough attention to. Mm-hmm. And I have a great CFO, so it's mm. that's um, makes it much easier. Right. But um, you have to know what type of questions to ask. You know, yeah. people get in trouble when they don't actually ask all the right questions. Yeah. You don't have to necessarily have all the answers, but you have to ask the right questions. Yeah, I think that's that's very wise. I think it's exactly right. And but you need to be educated enough in mm-hmm. a field to be able to, to even generate some of those questions. And then, of course, there's also the innocent questions, as in people that have no background, the naive yeah. questions, and they ask the things the experts have never asked because <laughs> yeah. they've been in it forever. Yeah. Sometimes in medicine, I think that, that might happen because when you're being treated, you're surrounded by deep expertise. And, and, and sometimes the innocent little questions can be... Can Very be important. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. You know, I, a math minor from Dartmouth helped me. 
but you know, my dad um, actually had a photographic memory, and I think wow. I inherited at least a few of those really? neurons nice. because I can rem- I can look at a spreadsheet mm-hmm. and just remember numbers, and mm-hmm. I think it's one of the gifts for my dad. Wow. You know, they said that Bill Gates had this unbelievable ability to remember not just a few numbers, but gigantic cab- cabinetfuls of uh, numbers. I mean, imagine you go to present to him <laughs> about something <laughs> when he knows the numbers better than you know the numbers, even though you just spent the last, you know, uh, three weeks preparing for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, let's take uh, one last short break and come back with, uh, with Joanne Conroy. We're talking healthcare, so uh, let's talk exercise. Everyone should be getting out there and exercising. I'm giving you a lot of advice in these commercials today. Uh, I've started to bike uh, all over the uh, Upper Valley. It's really fun. And uh, I use this app called uh, Strava uh, that um, uh, keeps track of, uh, of where you go and tells you how many calories you burn. I think they inflate it to make you feel better. But regardless, uh, it's summertime. It's a great time to be outside. Let's enjoy. Let's be outside. Let's be safe. Everyone enjoy. We're back with our last segment with Joanne. Uh, Joanne, so uh, I have two or three uh, questions or topics I want to I touch on and, uh, in this last segment. The first is marijuana. Uh, the cannabis industry is, seems to be booming, and it's being legalized um, for medicinal and sometimes recreational purposes in many uh, states. So this is a very big movement, and it's, it's not just coming. It's kind of here, and it's, uh, it looks like it's going to become bigger and bigger. So both as an anesthesiologist, which is your, your, mm-hmm. your original medical training, um, and as a CEO, what, uh, and how, do you, how do you think about this from a medical point of view and from a leadership point of view? Mm-hmm. So we'll take from a medical point of view first. A lot of the cannabis work actually started in the, you know, the mid-'70s, and I actually think Dartmouth actually was very involved mm. with actually identifying some of the active ingredients in marijuana mm-hmm. in um, the um, in the 70s and 80s. Right now, um, the, um, the receptors in the brain and the spinal column that are responsible for the perception of pain um, are, we understand a lot more about it now, but we are still not, um, um, the science isn't completely uh, perfect in terms of um, whether or not or how all of these drugs actually create a pain-free state. And cannabis was not actually really known for treating pain. Um, People have found it treats anxiety and it treats nausea effectively. But now a number of people are saying that it does everything. Mm -hmm. And we will find out through really um, well-designed, randomized studies, whether or not it really is effective for certain issues. So um, I think the science is still um, developing in that. You know, as an anesthesiologist, we don't really know how anesthetics work. You don't? No, we don't. It's still... They work. They work. work, But the actual mechanism, the scientific mechanism, the biochemical mechanism? We don't know. Wow. I know. It's kind of one of those... Great mysteries. Yeah. Now, uh, we have a whole class of inhalational anesthetics. You know, when you breathe through a mask, mm-hmm. you go into a deep sleep, yeah. and we know what happens physiologically, yeah. but we actually don't really know what's happening in the brain. Mm. Um, there are a group of hydrocarbons that we're inhaling, mm. and um, 
but these families have the same effect. So we've developed a number of anesthetics. We have a new anesthetic that came out. It's not really new. It came out probably 30 years ago called Propofol. Um, it was probably got a lot of airtime around Michael Jackson's death. Oh, right. Yes. Um, yes. Again, not an analgesic. It's an anesthetic. Uh, again, we don't have a really great idea of how, where it works in the brain, but mm. we do know that it creates effective anesthesia, which is really amnesia and immobility. People don't move. They don't respond to pain. That's really our mm -hmm. definition of yeah. anesthesia. It's mm -hmm. a pretty old one. Yeah. And, you know, when, yeah. when they were giving ether, if you didn't jump when they put your scalpel on your skin, that was, was good anesthesia. So <laughs> anyway, um, as an employer, though, um, the proliferation of the legalization of marijuana um, creates some challenges for us. In every state, in fact, every country, Canada, it's legal. That surrounds the mm -hmm. state of New Hampshire, it's legal. Only medical marijuana is legal in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. Many of our employees actually come from other states. They so commute in from... Commutes in. Vermont, Massachusetts, yeah. wherever. So that actually creates some workforce challenges. And how we focused on it is establishing a way that we can see whether somebody's fit for duty. And... Um, because if somebody lives in Vermont and it's recreationally um, legal in the state of Vermont, they're going to carry evidence mm -hmm. of that in their blood for weeks. Hmm. And um, so we really have to focus on whether or not people are fit for duty. So it's test, difficult. You're testing people then for this? Only if they're fit for, only fit for duty issues. If you have somebody that you think is impaired then you would test for alcohol. You would test for any other um, narcotics, marijuana. Mm -hmm. You know, you would test for the things that you we know will impair an employee. So you mean if it appears as if someone might not be fit for duty, that's fit when you duty. would test them. Yeah, yeah. And there are so many other things. Fatigue can sure. make you not fit but for duty. But you wouldn't ordinarily well. do it if someone just seems the same as they always no. they always no. do. Yeah. Uh, and what are the legal implications of of that? Um, so if you feel somebody's not fit for duty, you can test. And this is true for any employer or in healthcare or well, many employers actually do test randomly for yeah. certain um, for certain substances. Um, but in healthcare, we really tried to focus on if somebody's fit for duty or not. Yeah. And you know, I I have um, I've actually had uh, residents and nurses that I found that were using illegal medications. Mm. And, you know, as a chairman, um, I had to intervene. I had to make sure that it was all documented and I had to get them into treatment programs. Right. So it's one of the, yeah. anesthesia has probably one of the highest incidents of people that um, actually do have difficulties with um, propofol and narcotics mm. because the access is because of the so access. easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so CEO, DHMC, and woman, and so let's talk about what that's like. Mm -hmm. Do you think your job would be, and your experience in your job would be dramatically different if you happened to have been um, a man? You mean the experience I'm having right now? Right now, right now, yeah. Over these 18 months, as you described, uh, or uh, state a little bit differently, do you, do you think, do you actually think about the fact that you're a woman as opposed to a CEO? 
Does that factor into any of the ways you think about things? Um, because people perceive may perceive you differently. Doesn't now. Mm -hmm. I think when I was younger, yeah. I thought about it more. Uh, but now, I actually don't think about it very much. Yeah. However, I am really passionate about gender equity in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And I recognize where we don't have gender equity. Mm -hmm. And we actually started an initiative at Dartmouth-Hitchcock where we ask our vendors to talk about the gender equity within their leadership teams and on their mm -hmm. boards as mm -hmm. part of the RFP process. Mm -hmm. And if we are interviewing for important jobs, we actually blind the CVs so you can't tell race or gender. So candidates mm. actually have an equal opportunity based on their experience and their performance. Right, right. That became famous with um, an orchestra, is that yes. idea, right? Yeah. Of doing the the audition behind a curtain so you couldn't see who that person was, man, yeah. woman, you know, yeah. black, white, it didn't matter, uh, which is which is great. And yeah. and what ended up happening, as you may know, with orchestra, in orchestras is that they, they became much more... Um, um, much more diverse uh, because they there had been discrimination. That's right. right. Yeah, and uh, in your work in, um, in in Washington as well before um, an earlier stage of your career, um, what's your? I mean, why why do we still? This is twenty nineteen. Why are we still talking about gender equity issues? It's like seems like we've been talking about it forever. The answer is the problem's not solved. But why why is that? Yeah. Why does it, why does it have to take so long? Uh, so. For at least in leadership and healthcare, and the pace we're going right now will take a hundred years to have uh, equity in leadership in healthcare. In terms of numbers of women, yes. Yeah. So um, we haven't made as much progress as we mm -hmm. hoped we would have. Um, I think there's a lot of unconscious bias, mm -hmm. number one, in the workplace, and I think we just we haven't educated people um, as effectively as we could. Yeah. Number one. I'm, there are some basic principles that we all should be using in the workplace to actually just um, point to unconscious bias mm -hmm. and um, just bring it to people's attention so we can actually um, evaluate people on their performance. Sure. I, I see it all the time. Mm -hmm. And you just try to remind people that they're being affected by some unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. I actually did... I do have a not-for-profit called Women of Impact mm -hmm. in my spare time. Yes. We have 65 <laughs> women that are um, committed to fixing what's broken in healthcare, um, mentoring the next generation of women leaders, but we're also bringing together a gender equity collaborative with 30 large health systems and industries to talk about what can we do to actually improve gender equity in our workplace, because you're right, we thought it was fixed. It's not fixed. No, it's not. In some ways, it's it's getting worse when you add in, um, the, well, the whole the whole the whole thing has come up with the Me Too movement and yes. just how endemic um, incidences of sexual harassment and, and, and worse yeah. uh, are, are coming up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but you know what? There are a couple mm. things that we should remember from that. There are a lot of men that want to change it as well, mm. and you know, men that stand up sometimes for. Uh, gender equity issues uh, catch a lot of vitriol hmm. in social media, too. So we need to figure out how do we actually get our allies lined up with us yeah. as well, who often are a lot of men that want to support gender equity, number one. And, you know, I, I think the, you know, the second piece is that um, 
you know, we have, um, you know, the whole Me Too movement has kind of focused on the things that we just, um, you know, the ugly side of, of um, not only unconscious bias, but anger and hatred mm -hmm. around people that uh, believe they're losing something when yeah. other people do well. I mean, that's, that's, we're not unique in a culture that's got to address that, but we should be doing better than we are right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, so you, you do mentoring yourself of lots of people as part of this organization and then no doubt at, uh, on, on your job. And uh, do you, do you, um, when you think back at the people that you've mentored over, not just now, but over the last you know, 10 years or, or your career, do you, ha or have you purposely tried to identify high potential women? Um, knowing that maybe you could have a bigger impact on them than you might on, on someone else? You know, your impact is um, sometimes really powerful in very small ways. Mm -hmm. So I do mentor a lot of women. Some women find me. Um, often I am uh, matched up with women that want mentoring through a number of the professional organizations that I'm involved with. Um, but, you know, going to... Um, schools where um, young women come up and ask you questions or mm -hmm. listen to a talk or um, participating in um, programs that talk about leadership. Yeah. You know, it's amazing how many people you can affect that you really don't even know the impact. I have women that come up to me that heard me talk 15 years ago mm -hmm. and say that it changed their life. And so I appreciate the fact that sometimes you're mentoring people and you're not even aware of it. Right. You just got to be out there. You got to be. You you got to be speaking. You got to be talking. You got to be living. Right. The, the and being a good role right. model. Yeah. Exactly. That's very rewarding when people come up to you and say that, isn't it? Yeah. It is. Yeah. It is. So, um, if you could magically transport yourself back to when you were, uh, say, 21, uh -huh. um, uh, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, given, you know, the, the career that you've developed and the things you've learned, um, uh, what advice would you give your 21-year-old self? Mm. You know, I actually did write a letter to myself um, as an 80-year-old woman. It's part of a kind of a process of creating really focus on your career and um, really making a commitment to having real impact. And, Sorry, um, so how did that work? Yeah. You pretended you were 80. And I wrote myself a letter. Uh, today, when I was, I, 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 whenever you did this. Yeah, it was about 10 years ago and um, to myself back then. So it's the same type of question, except yeah. I'm changing the, the so, time frame yeah. a little bit. And um, I told myself to be confident. Yeah. And um, don't look to others to validate mm -hmm. what I was doing. I told myself to make decisions because they were good for me, not necessarily good for a relationship. Mm -hmm. I told myself to um, be courageous and to uh, learn to take risks. Um, yeah. That's, that's, that's a lot, and that's good advice. Yeah, it yeah. was good advice. Are you still doing those things today? So I'm actually a, I'm a pretty big risk taker. Yeah. And um, there, I'm, I'm able to take risks. Mm -hmm. I don't have kids, mm -hmm. and I'm pretty mobile. You know, I'll, I um, would pick up and move for the right job. A lot of women um, are in professional marriages and don't have the freedom to do that. Right. 
Uh, they have kids that are in school. They don't have the freedom sure. to do that. Mm -hmm. So I have an opportunity, actually, to take a lot of risk. Yeah. Um, confidence, I would say that it was almost when I was um, a third-year resident that I realized that I was really great at what I did. Mm -hmm. And somehow I, I didn't think I was. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I was um, any different than anybody else. And... And sometimes you just have to listen mm -hmm. uh, for that positive feedback. I, I don't yeah. think I was very good at hearing it. You didn't think you, you, you gave yourself permission to believe yeah. that, you're, that you're great. Yeah. So yeah. I started hearing that. Mm -hmm. And although my um, husband would say, don't break your arm patting yourself on the back, yeah. but that's actually not a bad skill to have because I realized that although it's validating, you can't live for that. You have to be able to be happy with what you do mm. without the affirmation of others yeah. because um, um, sometimes you, you are just going to have to be comfortable with your decisions and the outcomes mm -hmm. because you've decided that they're important and you're going to achieve them, yeah. Yeah. not just because people are going to love you or tell you you're great. Right. Tying, tying what you just said back to conversation about, um, about women and leadership and some of the challenges, confidence is one of those things that has been singled out by many people and a lot of research yeah. on the differences between men and women in terms of confidence. So as a, as a, as a bit of advice to a 21-year-old, a 21-year-old, uh, um, you know, Joanne there, that's pretty good advice yeah. uh, because the odds, uh, the odds say that you're going to be much less likely to feel that than, 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 than a man would in the same situation. Yeah. 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 Um, so the career has is, is gone from um, medicine, practicing medicine, anesthesiology, to uh, running more than one hospital at different times, uh, uh, some public, um, a public policy side as well, and of course being the CEO of Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Uh, now I'm going to give you a mulligan. You can do it all over again. <laughs> and I'm not saying you don't want to do the same thing over again, but let's just magically imagine, or have you ever even thought about that? You know, is there something else you could have imagined doing if you had, if you were given another chance in another life. You did great with this one. Is there something totally or somewhat different? What would that be? So before I went to medical school, um, my friend and I, um, we were going to actually start a restaurant. It was going to be a cafe bakery called Land of the Rising Bun. And, <laughs> um, you know, I spent, I put myself through school cooking. You know, I was a cook at Peter Christian's when I was a little in, restaurant here in Hanover yeah, way back. When I was in college, which is closed now. Mm -hmm. um, I cooked at a Jewish delicatessen when I was on Cape Cod working at MBL. I was also a sous chef at one of the Italian restaurants. Mm -hmm. And actually I love cooking. And I I could have owned a restaurant. I understand how demanding it you is. You understand that that would have been a very, very difficult life. <laughs> it would have been a very difficult life with a different outcome. Different. Well, you never know. But you know what? Um, healthcare and hospitality are not that different. Uh -huh. We're both service industries, mm -hmm. to be honest. Mm. We're serving people. And um, you've all been to restaurants where the food has been great, but the service, you would never go back. That's right. Sometimes healthcare is like that. The, the product might be good, but how mm -hmm. we're serving it up frustrates patients. Mm -hmm. um, they um, it angers them, it confuses mm -hmm. them. Um, so healthcare is a service industry, and yeah. I had pretty good training. Yeah, that's um, a great uh, that's a great in insight, Joanne, uh, about service industry, hospitality, cooking. Um, yeah, I can really I can really see that. 
there's, there's no replacement for making someone feel good about where they're at, even if, and especially in healthcare. Even if it's not it's a great not place to be? be a great result. Um, and I think there's research on that as well, isn't there? About, there is. And, and, and that's another thing. I, I, I could add. Are we teaching that in medical school these days, the importance of this service, this sense of making someone feel like they can do it, that it's good, that they're going to be okay, that, that, that we care about you? Yeah. We're doing a lot better job at teaching medical students how to do that. And it's not just medical students, but it's residents. Mm -hmm. You know, when they're in the mm -hmm. crush of yeah. delivering a lot of care to patients. Crazy long hours. Yeah, they, maintaining they, their mm. composure yeah. and um, being present for the patients. Um, mm -hmm. We're spending a lot more time actually teaching people how to do that. Yeah. And I think Dwayne Compton, the dean of the medical school, is actually trying to interview for that, to really interview. Well, that's interesting. How do you, interview how do you identify this, how do you identify that, do you think? People that are empathetic, people that are... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there, are, there are interviewing techniques to tease that out. There are assessment tools as yeah. well that can get you part of the way there. Yeah. So they're spending a lot of time thinking yep. about yep. Um, getting the right people into Geisel School of Medicine. Right, so. right. You know, this idea of, of, of empathy, we talk about that a lot um, in the business school and, and in business more more generally. I think that it's it's almost like the... Almost like the, the, the biggest insight that's becoming popularized in industry after industry, sector after sector, just how incredibly powerful that is. And it has to do directly or indirectly with things like mindfulness that we talk a lot about, mm -hmm. personal, uh, personal health, caring about someone, gratitude, these things that um, um, more, there's a greater recognition of, of yeah. why and how that's important, and uh, therefore more practitioners, if you will, of it, which is great. Last question for you. You mentioned your, um, your marriage, your husband. Where do you guys meet? Um, so it's my second husband. Uh, he's a commercial photographer, and he actually took my professional pictures in ah. Charleston, South Carolina. Nice. And uh, it was interesting. So he took about 200 frames. and uh, He only needed three, but he kept going. Oh, he called <laughs> me up, and he said, uh, you know, your smile is the same on every single frame. Huh. I do. I have a, I have a pretty I'm good looking at you right now. <laughs> yeah, and he said... It, it doesn't seem like you have any depth. <laughs> oh, love that. Good opening line. <laughs> yeah. And so I went back to get some more pictures taken, and he asked me out on a date. So so what do you think of that technique? Interesting. It was pretty good. Clever. It was it pretty work. good. Yeah, yeah. He was, uh, he was a College of Charleston graduate and yeah, uh, yeah. had worked for the newspapers and basically was a fixture in the town, and I have dragged him all over the country now. Right, right. So That's great. Well, Joanne, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for being on the SIDCast. Thank you, Sid.